Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 23? Forty-seven through. I don't. Is it Luke twenty-two? I put it up there in all the Greek, and I didn't have the. Um, well, I mean, is it the betrayal of Jesus? I've had when I stand up, my mind sits down sometimes. Okay, it's twenty-two. I thought that didn't look right. I have such blazing speed on that keyboard, you never know what's going to come out. So we're in Luke 22, verses 47 and following. Now Christ, while he was still speaking, this goes back to what we looked at last time, namely, the time when He's telling his disciples that they need to pray and be on guard against temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd and he who is called Judas, one of the twelve, was going before them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus then said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Understand that this is all in the sovereign plan of God. We looked at this some weeks ago when we laid the foundation for the time of the passion of Christ that we were coming to in Luke. And so Christ knows if you, if you take all of the gospel accounts and put them together, Christ said to his disciples, one of them would betray him. Oh, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? He says, the one who dips with me in the sop. Only, of course, it was Judas. Judas ran out, begins making his plans, going to those that he needed to go to uh, to work out this betrayal. Because Christ, we studied it already, and his disciples, as Christ would teach for the day, and the multitudes were listening to him teach, when the day was over, he would move out of the temple area. He and his disciples, they would withdraw to a particular area uh, in the Mount of Olives. And it was his custom, the Bible says, to withdraw to there every evening. So Judas knew, knew where this spot was. Now understand, it's time of Passover. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of Jews in and around the Jerusalem area, perhaps a couple of million. Uh, a quarter million of them or so knew that Jesus was coming, they'd heard about him, and he was coming in. That goes back to Palm Sunday. and It's, it's said that about a quarter of million of them, of course, welcomed him and did all the stuff they did on Palm Sunday. So Jesus and his disciples are quite popular at this point in time, and the officials know that, those who are out to put him to death. Christ... In the will of his Father, by the power of the Spirit, knows that his time has come, his hour has come. And he also knows that, as we have studied earlier, much earlier, how Christ said to the twelve, I chose the twelve of you and one of you is a devil. 
So nothing is a surprise to Jesus. Of course, it's all in the will of the Father. And Jesus knows that Judas has come to betray him with a kiss. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? It's a messianic title that comes from Daniel. With a kiss. You're right, my, my, is it working? Oh, it's, okay. We got it, thank you, good. Then those around him having seen what would be. All right, let me stop there. You have to go back to John's gospel. I think it's around chapter 18. We insert that here just before this first line that we're reading. And here's what John tells us occurred. A Roman cohort with temple guards under the command of a Kiliarch. All right, we, get, we, we have to look at the Greek text and understand what the picture is. Jesus and 11 disciples are praying. Christ is coming under great stress. He is becoming sin, something he had never known. Paul writes, he who knew no sin was made to be sin in our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so this is a great and profound and staggering Stressful thing that's happening to Jesus. His disciples can't help him in this. He has to do it alone. And he knows this. So, having just spoken to his disciples about their need to pray and not fall into temptation, here comes a Roman cohort with temple guards. Could have been a couple of hundred temple guards. A cohort is at least 600 Roman soldiers. Could be as many as a thousand. They're commanded by Kiliarch, who commands a thousand soldiers, one sixth of a legion. So the Kiliarch, we're told in John, the Kiliarch is in command. So you have hundreds, hundreds, literally hundreds of well armed soldiers and temple guards. The temple guards have clubs like little baseball bats, billy clubs. The Roman soldiers have the short sword the Makaira, and they have, they're an imposing group. They have weapons and lanterns and torches. And you can hear them marching, and they come. They come right up to where G Judas knew that Jesus and the 11 would be because the Bible says that was their custom to withdraw to that place every night. And his intent, and he carries it out to... Betray Christ with a kiss. In John, right as we get to this line here, this verse 49. In John, we're told that this tremendous group of soldiers and temple guards and their commanders, battle hardened. The Middle East is no different now than it was then. Worst place in the world for soldiers to be. So these guys are tough, these soldiers. And 
the commander steps forward. Jesus looks that at them and he says, who are you seeking? The commander said, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. You have to get, you have to get this, you have to get this in, uh, in John's gospel. Christ replied, ego ami, ego ami. Now that's like, that's like the name of Yahweh, I am. And so he said, when he said, I am he, the Bible says in John's gospel that those hundreds of soldiers, all of them, fell down. Okay, so the disciples, now they're over here, now they've seen him raise the dead and heal the sick, walk on water, stop a storm. They've seen him do all this stuff. So they're beginning to feel a little froggish. Earlier we saw where Christ said, we're going to need some swords. Arm yourselves. You have swords? We have two. Christ said, that's enough. And out they went. It was not for Christ's protection that they would carry them, but it was for their own protection. Christ is taking care of his disciples. So John teaches us then that Christ says, I am. Boom. They all not just with a thought, Jesus knocked them down. So it's obvious that he doesn't need any help. He could take care of it, but he's come to do the Father's will. And to go like a lamb to the slaughter is the Father's will. Now, we pick that up here. The disciples just saw when Jesus stepped in, I am. Boom, they all fell. Well, the disciples said, oh, okay, that's <laughs> more like it. Two swords. They had two swords. Remember that? Two swords. <laughs> So we pick up the story here. This is where it comes in right here. Then those around him, that's the 11, having seen what would be, in other words, they're saying, okay, I'm getting the hang of this now. They said, Lord, will we strike with the short sword, the Mekata? I always differentiate because of two Greek words in the New Testament, that's the big military sword. The short sword is more the common man's sword, and it was something that the Romans had really made popular. It was a little longer. Theirs was a little larger than a regular man's dagger. But this was, this was, these were common man weapons, okay? Shall we take the two swords, the two daggers that we have, and sh shall we have at them? And a certain one of them, he didn't want to wait for the answer. This was Peter. We learned this in, another, in John's gospel, I think. Certain one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his right ear. Now answering, Jesus said, no more of this. And having touched the ear, he healed him. Okay, now right in here, in the other gospel account, Jesus says, this is not how this is going to work out. Don't you know that I can take care of myself? If I had to, I could call for 12 legions of angels to come and help me if I wanted to. And they'd be right here. Now, any Jewish man would have known his Old Testament. And in 2 Kings, what, chapter 19, something like that, one angel killed 185,000 soldiers. So, and it, that probably wasn't that difficult for that angel. So 185,000, you can do the math. 
12 legions, that's, 70, that's at least 72,000 angels when one of them could kill 185,000. And, and, and Jesus says, I, you know, put your sword up. He also said, if you're going to live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Jesus is taking care of his disciples. Now, he, referring back to the other gospel, Jesus asks a second time, who are you here for? The answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, Jesus now has established who they've come to arrest. That means that they're obligated to release his disciples. And so Jesus says, all right, then you let these go. And they do. Of course, these guys, they run and hide. And they're all scared at that point. So that brings us then to where Jesus says, no more of this. Having touched the ear, he healed him. All right, let me... Uh, let me talk about, I'm missing a, I'm missing a, there it is. Then Jesus said to those having come out against him, chief priests, captains of the temple elders, have you come out with short swords and clubs like I'm a thief? Every day I was with you in the temple and you didn't stretch out your hands against me. And this is the point that I want to make this morning because it is, to me so powerful and is, it is so relative to the day in which we find ourselves as believers in Christ. But this is your hour and the power of the darkness. So I, I, I've, I've called this message the assignment of darkness. Darkness has no power unless it is by the willful purpose of God permitted to exercise its awful scheme at an appointed time, but that time is always assigned by our sovereign God in heaven, he is never out of control. That's why we have faith in him. Never. Times of darkness have come across the history of man. I'm reminded of the pre-flood world, for example. And the book of Genesis teaches us that if you look at it in the, and you consider the Hebrew text, God was filled with pity and remorse over the depraved condition of the world. Except for one to whom God would extend grace. And his family. And so that context in Genesis 6 says that God was hurt. Okay, here's my point God never enjoys allowing the assignment of darkness, it hurts him. 
But it has to be for all things to be fulfilled. So the principle is established in my view in Genesis 6. God is filled with pity over the depraved state of the antediluvian world. It's just horrible. As a matter of fact, the Bible says everything they thought all of their imagines were imaginations. They, only, they could only imagine evil. Everything they thought was, thought, thought was only evil because of the depravity of man. And if there is no grace, that would include you and me. In our natural unfallen state, there is no depth too low. There is no thought too evil. There is no imagination too depraved, but for the grace of God, that he would intervene in the behalf of his own. So then, God pitied the world because God was going to have to do away with this darkness. And he was hurt because left to himself, man can only think evil and bad. Well, of course, God did something. Noah found grace. Noah discovered grace. Grace was extended And we continue to the glorification of God's own and to the glory of God in him showing himself all that he is and what he can do. And we've yet to discover completely all of that and we won't do it until the time of the new heaven and the new earth. So Jesus, in the will of the Father, resigns himself to this assignment of darkness. Now you understand, God's chosen Old Testament people have taken his oracles, his word, his calling, his election, his separation, his miracles, And have distorted it and added man-made things to it and made something beautiful into something ugly. Self-righteousness, no need of a savior. I can do this myself. And Jesus standing against it now faces the conspiracies of these people who would lose fame, honor, wealth, and power. And so Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. The darkness is falling swiftly. God's own chosen people have rejected him and his son 
And God the Son, who is the designated actual creator, is to be murdered by his own creation. He came to his own. And his own received him not. The assignment of darkness. I believe I'm 68 years old. This is not the world into which I was born. This is not the world in which Pat and I married. This is not the world really that existed like it did when we started having children. Darkness is falling swiftly in the world. It's getting easier to understand why the Old Testament sage would say Every thought and imagination of man is only evil. Every time I think I have heard the weirdest, most perverse, most evil, darkest thing that I've ever heard in my life, and I couldn't have imagined it. Every time I think, man, nobody could think up something worse than that. Somebody thinks up something worse than that. And so the world is spiraling. I, I believe it's the precursor to the rapture of the church and the coming of the Lord. But there must be this apostasy first. And the, we have to brace ourselves for this. There's darkness falling. You put, all of the, you put all of the gospel accounts together and what Christ is saying to his disciples, this has to be, this was written. And so you and I, in the age where we find ourselves with darkness falling so rapidly, it has to be. It has to be. So let's think about this. And I, I want to look at four things that I extract from this passage that I can even apply in the day in, where we, in which we live. Four things that attend to the rise of darkness. Number one, elitism. The, our, our text said that the crowd came out. Well, we know who they were. We can put the four accounts together. They were... They were the chief priests, the temple officials, the captains of the guard and the, the high priest. So the, the, the ruling religious elite, Roman officials would have been there. They could not have arrested Christ without conspiring with Rome. Organized police and military might were together. I've read several books by scholars who have examined 
what happened in the arrest of Christ. And they drew upon the existing Roman and Jewish law, both written and oral traditional law. And none of this thing, none of it is legal. They're making it up while they go. Because this man is a threat to their power. And their wealth. And the religion that they established themselves, calling it the religion of God's people. So there is this elitism that exists in the rise of darkness. A few people place themselves on a plane above everybody else. They can think for you. They can tell you what to do. They can tell you what's true and what's not true. They don't believe in absolute truth unless they approve it. So there's this rise of elitism and legality means nothing. Truth means nothing. Reality means nothing. It is what they say it is. And this is what Christ is facing. That's the first thing. The second thing is indifference. What happened to that quarter of a million people who were praising Jesus on Sunday? By the time, okay, they're entering into Friday and by the time the sun is in full blaze, these same people are going to be saying to crucify him. Indifference toward absolute truth and the reality of the Son of God, who Jesus really is and what he does, what he has done for his own. Indifference. You can bring that forward into this day and with the assault on the, the, the true living church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the world hatred of God and his word and his Christ. What do we do? We're just sort of indifferent. We just kind of shake our heads. We take a deep breath. We don't take a stand. We just, oh well, God help us. Indifference. The next thing is cowardice. These guys came at night. Remember, the multitudes were listening to him and they were afraid of the multitudes in the time that Jesus was teaching. But they knew if somehow they could gain control of the rhetoric and the narrative, if somehow they could gain control of it and silence Jesus, then they could sway the crowd back into their favor. So they come at night as cowards. Judas came as a coward So in the rise of darkness, there are always those. Indifference leads to cowardice. Just somehow more afraid of existentialism than they are of the living God. Unbelievable. Finally, the last thing is danger. They were in danger. Jesus is about to be horribly mistreated and killed. 
and the disciples knew they were in danger and they ran. But there was real danger for those because now these elitists have everything on their side at this moment in time and their darkness is becoming complete. When the world kills its creator. And so then with everything quickly coming to their side through threats, intimidations, whatever, everybody else is in danger. If, you, if you're connected to this guy, we're coming for you too. So it was prophesied of Peter, you know, you're going to deny me. And he did it Worse than Jesus said, he cursed and he swore. Cowards, danger that he was in, the uncontrollable fear. There's danger. That has to be understood in a time when darkness is rising. But where sin abounds, Grace much more abounds. You know the old song, it's Friday, but Sunday's on the way. We don't leave this story right now just on Friday. The sovereign grace of God is always revealed in the way God will do it by his plan, his will, his purpose, and his time the sovereign grace of God will always, always bring in his light and it will dispel the darkness. Things were awfully bad. You know, the Old Testament, there's a psalm. Um, anyway, weeping lasts but for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Light will always come and dispel the darkness. Go back to the pre-flood world. The flood came, but Noah lived. And from the seed of Noah through Shem comes the Christ of God, who finally is offered up, the son offered up by the father, to fulfill the terms of the eternal covenant between Father and Son that we might be redeemed in Christ. Christ is headed to the cross. He will be offered for our sin. He will be deposited as legal tender for payment for me and take that with him into the grave Put away all that is depraved about me and emerge in the resurrection. My sins went with him into the tomb. My sins were nailed away on the cross. The sinful condition put away. And glory came forth. And this glory is mine. In a time and in a way that God will reveal and place it upon me.
So what Christ does by taking it, here comes the, the darkness and the, the shadows fall. It turns to night. There's an earthquake and all this stuff. And they take his ruined body to bury it in the tomb. But just like he said, on the third day, he rose again. Now, what does that mean? This great light that dispels the darkness. This is what it means. Romans chapter eight, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise your spirit from the dead. It'll raise you from the dead. If it happened with Jesus and you belong to Christ, then that same resurrection power is yours. It's mine in Christ. And he's put it away forever. So what is our, let's move that forward to where we are. I ponder the impending reality every day in prayer. You know, we, we live stream and we, we do other stuff. We have podcasts and we just do the Bible. We believe the Bible. If the Bible says it's a sin, it's a sin. We don't apologize for that. If the Bible says great things about Christ and the coming glory of Christ and his church, we just preach that. If the Bible says Jesus is the only way and there is no other way, we preach that. We believe it. We don't apologize for it. And every day in prayer, the thought creeps into my mind that before I die, I may be imprisoned for just preaching the truth. There's a bill before the legislature in California to outlaw, to make it a criminal offense, to speak against sexual perversion. If I simply stood here and read Romans 1 and that bill passed and I was in California, they would arrest me. Just by reading the truth of the Word of God. Darkness is coming. But we mustn't be cowards. We mustn't be indifferent. Because God's light will dispel the darkness. So what? So what if I'm killed? I'm going to die anyway. I'm like, may I quote Rambo? <laughs> it's better to live for something than to die for nothing. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The light of the world is Jesus. Sure, the darkness is coming, but I will be found in the light. Hopefully rapture. Can't be long. Can't be far. Man, I've read the book. 
I've read it more than once. I'm actually intelligent enough to deduce things and say, man, Jesus said, when you see all these things beginning to come to pass, and they all are. Then light is just ahead. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. According to the blessed and holy word of God, if you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and in confessing your sin, call on him to save you. Repent and believe the gospel. God is bound by his word to save you. Because you can't come to that conclusion without the great power of God awakening you in regeneration and drawing you to himself by the power of his Holy Spirit. The invitation is open for you if you would come to Christ today. Perhaps you've already come to Christ and you want to come and make it known just by coming down the aisle. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian. This is where God leads you to come and be a part of a Bible-believing congregation. You're invited to come and join our congregation and we will take care of all the details of church membership if God wants that in your life. Father God in heaven, bless us as only you can do now and use this invitation as you see fit and however it works out, Lord, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing. Would you come?